Welcome to another exciting episode of the Into the Impossible podcast featuring yours truly, Dr. Brian Keating, and my friend and two-time guest, Dr. Hakeem Olushei. Hakeem was on last time to talk about his book, Quantum Leaps, a journey from the streets to the stars, involving his evolution as a scientist, but also as a human being from essentially a kid on the streets dealing drugs to Stanford University's PhD program and working on solar physics and obtaining multiple patents in technology in the semiconductor industry. But today he's on for a different reason. He's talking about his work to really restore a somewhat tarnished legacy of James Webb, the namesake of the James Webb Space Telescope. You may not know this in all the buildup to the James Webb's launch and unfurling and first images that are coming up and so exciting. And stay tuned to the Into the Impossible podcast on YouTube, Dr. Brian Keating channel, because we are doing some breaking news as it comes out from the Webb telescope. But James Webb himself was a controversial figure. There's some that say that he was deeply involved in the so-called lavender scare that attempted to ostracize and punish uh, people from the LGBTQI plus community back in the 50s and 60s. And Hakeem demanded an explanation as a um, member of a minority group himself, as an African-American physicist, very prominent one, in fact, the current president of the National Society of Black Physicists. Hakeem saw it as his duty to see if this reputation uh, deserved to be uh, burnished instead of tarnished. And today's episode describes the kind of very fascinating and courageous uh, undertaking that he sought out to really reveal whether or not uh, Webb himself had this bigoted past. And what he found surprised him and it'll surprise you. Hakeem's faced a ton of backlash for this. So I, I encourage you to shout out to him. If you listen to this episode, find him on Twitter, Hakeem al I've links to it in the show notes. Uh, he deserves your support. He's a courageous individual. He's a brilliant individual. He's not just a, uh, a spokesperson for science. You see him on TV all the time, but he's also a top rated scientist, educator, thinker, and leader now as the president of the National Society of Black Physicists. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode. And if you do, reach out to me. Let me know some takeaways you got. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Brian Keating. And as I said, we're going to have new images, new data, exciting new releases coming from the Webb Space Telescope. The Event Horizon Telescope has a big announcement next week. Stay tuned. I have some insights into that as well. Hope to have Shep Dolman back on the podcast as well, the director of the EHT. Uh, so for now, now sit back, relax, and enjoy this journey into the impossible with Dr. Hakeem Olashei and answering the question whether or not the James Webb Telescope should be renamed. Let's go. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. In the news lately, the James Webb Space Telescope. So talk about that. What did you investigate? Why was it worth you know, your considerable valuable yeah. time and what was the ultimate outcome of that? Right, right. So I, I, you know, if there's anything, you know, I don't use the word hate a lot, but if there's yeah. one thing I hate, it's injustice. Okay. Yeah. So I saw this article in the summer of 2015 with the title, should NASA name observatories after bigots in Forbes.com. And I was like in shock. I was like, oh no, what? You know? And so I immediately did a little Google search to see what I could find. And the only thing I could find was an article that had been written five months earlier by David Savage in the Seattle newspaper, where a, a reader had a reader of his column had said, "Hey, I looked at, at, at this James Webb Wikipedia page, and it looks like this dude was horrible, and they're naming a telescope after him, right?" And so I'm like, "Oh man, it looks like it might be true, but still, I don't really see any real data." So let me go into this Facebook group we have called Equity and Inclusion in Astronomy and see what they think. And I go in there, and sure enough, it looks like everybody accepts that this is the case, right? And there was a call in there. People were saying someone should confront NASA. Someone should confront NASA. Hmm. So guess what I did in 2016? I took it straight to them. <laughs> Right. Not the top. You don't always want to go to the top because if you go to the top, you know, where else then, you go? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you got to go under the top right. to figure out what the situation is. Yeah. Plenty and then determine whether or not you go to the top. All right. So I, 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 I approach an executive 
um, and approached the head of the telescope. And neither had heard of these allegations. And they said, look, give us everything you got. And I gave them everything I had. And they said, all we see is accusations. We don't see any real data here. Would you mind um, looking into what happened? So I'm like, sure, I took it very seriously. So I, I connected with the librarians and archivists at NASA headquarters who connected me with people, historians, NASA historians, and people at Johnson Space Center. And this one guy who was doing a PhD in history on James Webb uh, at the University of Alabama in Huntsville and working at NASA Marshall Space Flight Center. And none of them had heard of this stuff. Okay, so we're like, wow. But then they started telling me about his behavior at NASA in the 60s. And they were just like, you know, it looks like a completely different guy. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? So, you know, there were very specific allegations, yeah. very specific. <laughs> he said this thing in Congress. He made this statement. He led this effort. He initiated this effort. So I work with these historians and archivists and librarians, and we figured out, no, he didn't. It's a case of mistaken identity. Everything that you say it happened, happened. So there is a book called, this book right here, Toward Stonewall, mm -hmm. right, on my show. Yeah. So this book is Toward Stonewall, Homosexuality and Society in the Modern Western World. So in it, and in the Wikipedia page, the author says that, oh, the Undersecretary of State said this thing in Congress in uh, January 1950, January, February. And so Webb's title was Undersecretary of State. But it turns out there were other people with a very similar title. Undersecretary of Management, Undersecretary of Administration, right? Things like that, right? So it wasn't Webb who said it was a guy named Purifoy, okay? And so then I said, okay, clearly he was not, he didn't do exactly what he's being accused of. But what did happen, really, at the State Department and uh, what did he do, if anything, in this particular effort? And what did he do generally, right? And I got the answers to all those questions, and I put it in the article, okay? So the people who actually did this, right? So this thing called the Lavender Scare is real, all right? So here is how it unfolds. Uh, but anyway, here, here's what happens. You know the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished. So, you know, me and my small team, we uncover it. Oh, this is great. It didn't happen. So here's how I think of it. You know how there's people wanting to pull down Confederate statues? Yeah. So imagine <clears throat> there's these rumors of this person. They're horrible. They, you know, murdered slave, enslaved people and did this and the other, did that and the other, you know, and every African-American in the community who walks by is like, I hate that thing. Right. Then some white dude in the community <laughs> comes along and goes, you know what? I researched that guy. Turns out he didn't do that. <laughs> but not only that, he's, do, he's done things that look like the opposite of that. Wow. So I published this work. And some of the small cobble of colleagues immediately were like, oh, but here's what Hakeem doesn't understand. Are you familiar with the Mott and Bailey logical fallacy? I probably committed it, but no, I don't. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> so here's what it is. It has to do with uh, medieval... Uh, war. So you have this um, courtyard, you know, your walls, right? And so if a large army comes, chances are they'll make it through the wall and into the courtyard, which is indefensible. So they would retreat to the Mott, I think, which was like a tower on a hill. And these things can be impregnable, right? So the Mott and Bailey logical fallacy is you go out on something that doesn't make sense Right. It, it's been proven false. And then, so you fall back to something that feels like it's easier to defend, but still treat it like it's the first thing. Right. So um, they're like, oh, he was in charge because, you know, he was the undersecretary of state, number two at the State Department. He was running the State Department. Right. And, and if this happened in your organization, you are responsible. However, there is a lot of scholarship on this and it's completely false. And here's a book about James Webb. And in here, his entire career is described. OK, and so that is completely not true, that statement. So anyway, what happens is I publish this article and these uh, astronomers go on what can only be called a disinformation campaign. This is after the 2021 article or yeah, I, I wrote my article January 2021. Yeah. The next day. I'll have a link to that. Yeah. Yeah. They go on Twitter. You know, you start you know, 
saying, oh, you know, it's a case of he's complicit, right? Now, the word complicit didn't show up before my article. It was like, he led these things, right. he said these things, he did these Attributable, yeah. Yep, right? So now you've done your Mott and Bailey switch, yeah. okay? The, the important thing here is that they held now a set of new specific um, allegations, and they are based on the hole that I left in my article. All right. And I will tell you what that hole is. There is a place in there where I said the only thing that ties Webb to uh, these events is a memo from Carlisle Humasign. I don't know what was the reason that he gave him this memo. It appears to be to bring him up to date on the situation of what they've been doing. But that's not what's important for this article right now. What's important is in that article, he gives the history of how this whole thing unfolded. And so with these other sources that I've used to show how it all unfolded, it tells a cohesive story. Yep. Now, the very next day, a fifth person outside of their group, and you can see this on, there was an article written uh, the next day by one of the authors of, of the uh, Scientific American piece with the title, The Straits Are Here to Save Us. So I have two things to say about that title. Number one, I've never publicly disclosed my sexuality. Right. Yeah. Thank you for assigning me one. Yeah, they're now, you. Say, I've seen you with your partners, they were women, and I'm, I'm going to say you call yourself queer, and I've hung out, been with there with you and your husband. Like, you right. know, it, it doesn't show. I could be as, you don't know what I am, right? Yeah, but you assign me that. You're assuming, right. You're yep. assuming, right? And then the second thing is, damn straight I'm here to save you. Because I noticed a long time ago mm. a trend. White people that were my friends would come to me, oh, Hakeem, if you heard what I hear, dude, yeah. you would, right? And I noticed, hey, when I hear somebody saying some homophobia, mm-hmm. it's usually in a room of heterosexuals. Yeah. When I hear somebody being misogynistic, it's usually in a room of men. Mm-hmm. And so there was an event that occurred where a male professor at my university said something about our one female professor, and I didn't say anything. I just mm. remained silent. And I knew that it was just <sighs> unjust and whatever right and it bothered me so badly that i vowed to myself that would never happen again i'm not going to be a safe space right if you want to bring your isms into my i'm going to let you know right now not here we're not rolling like that right your your way of thinking is not the way we're doing things right so yeah i am here to save you but anyway the thing that they found that i did not find in the book which is considered the sort of like uh you know, authoritative source by David K. Johnson called the Lavender Scare. He has a passage in there and it's necessary to read it. So here are the actual memos from the Webb Truman meeting that occurred in night on June 22nd, 1950. What happened is David K. Johnson. So he says, Undersecretary State James Webb met to discuss how the Hoey Committee and the White House might, might quote unquote, Work together on the homosexual investigation. Truman told the undersecretary, quote, he was sure we could find a proper basis for cooperation, unquote, and agreed that Webb and two White House aides should meet with Hoey to establish a modus operandi. Hmm. That's how (laughs) he wrote it. Now, let me tell you what you get out of that. Number one, they met for the purpose of discussing the Hoey committee. Number two, the statement, uh, work together on a homosexual investigation, establish a modus operandi, sounds like an open-ended, help us to design how we're going to do this. Yeah. So first thing is, if you look at his, at the articles that they put out and things, they hold up this meeting like, he had a meeting with Truman. We see that he had a meeting yeah, with guilt Truman. By association, right. It's guilt by association. Well, what it is, is they're trying to say, you know, if, it's like there's a, there's a sound effect. You know, he had a meeting with Satan, not Satan. It's not Truman. That's, it's not guilt by association. It, it is that it's a hot, super high. It's the highest level, mm. right? So mm-hmm. he must have been involved. But here's the thing. Truman and Webb met regularly since 1946. Webb ran an agency called the Bureau of Budget. And he worked, you know, you ever heard of this phrase, economic indicators that they use to, yeah. Webb invented that. Oh, wow. He was, 
Yeah, at the Bureau oh, of the wow. Budget. And he and Truman were so close that Truman told the Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, when he got reelected, we're putting Webb in as the second guy at the Department of State. You don't choose him, I'm choosing him. And Webb is like, what? I don't have any foreign policy experience. He's like, that's not what you're there for. Webb was what you would call like a bureaucrat nerd, right? He's like, in our foreign relations, we need some organization and yada, yada. And this is quoted in Power and Apollo. So Webb's job was about foreign relations and policy in a tough time, right? Now, here's the other thing. Now, let's look at the actual, what actually happened at that meeting. They didn't meet to discuss the Hoy Committee or anything like that. They had their regular meeting. So the first topic they discussed was uh, Charles Spofford. And then, <laughs> and then they discussed, uh, what else did they discuss? General Richard Marshall. And they discussed the state of the Vogler case. And then what happens? Webb informs Truman, by the way, Senator Hoey asked me to talk with him, to bring a message to you and have a meeting with him. So here's what it actually says. I informed the president that Senator Hoey had wished me to find out how the committee and the executive branch could work together on the homosexual investigation. You see, Hoey asks Webb, hey, can you see if the executive branch can work with on the homosexual investigation? Very different from Truman and Webb conspired, met, right? Quote unquote, right? Right, right. And he, the president, advised me to say to the senator that he was sure we could find a proper basis for cooperation. But we're not. We still haven't talked about what we're talking about cooperating on, right? And his, and this is where he gets to it. He, again, President Truman approved a suggestion that Mr. Murphy. White House counsel, Mr. Springarn, the White House liaison to the Senate Hoey Committee, and I see Senator Hoey on Saturday not to discuss in modus operandi to discuss the necessary problems involving this cooperation. Interesting. Very different. Yeah. What are those problems? It's in every document, even... Uh, David K. Johnson talks about in the Lavender Scare. It's in the um, Humosign memo. At every turn, the Senate was trying to get personnel files of the people who had been investigated for being a homosexual. Mm -hmm. Right? And so the executive branch was resisting turning that over because it could be used as a political bludgeon. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So let me tell you how things actually unfolded, because the true complicitness is with American society. So what happens is John Purifoy gives a Senate testimony in um, January of 1950, and they're pressing him, the senators, on people that have been kicked out of the Senate, excuse me, kicked out of the Department of State. Now, this is after. They had a, 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 a the, is it is it I forget the guy's name Blake or something like that. There's some person who was turning over documents to the Soviets hmm. that was hmm. in the State Department of State. So it was sort of like, oh, we got spies, and there was a couple other spy affairs. Right, right, so the right, context right. of the moment was really crazy. So they're you know, and it resulted in Truman's 1947 loyalty order. But he like, why would you why did you kick these people out? Purifoy resist, 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 and then he says they kicked them out for quote unquote being homosexuals, right? What happens next? Public outcry from the conservative parts of the nation. What? This is what's in the State Department? So politicians did what politicians do. There was already a um, Republican senator, Wary, who, had, who, who was already pushing this going back. That's in the human sign memo. But now he does a new investigation to see if they should have a committee. And that's talked about in the Lavender Scare this congressional investigation committee, like the, the, the most recent example of something like this is the Benghazi uh, mm -hmm. uh, committees, right? Something yeah. like that. It's a Senate investigation, State Department, right? So they get their investigation and the guy who's leading the investigation is a guy named Flant, is a guy, you know, is, is Senator Hoey. So David K. Johnson record that, that quote someone is saying that Hoey nearly fell out of his window. It's a sordid affair. I don't want any part of it. Um, and so what ends up happening is 
he I, I want to get the exact same language because basically what happens is is that Hoey doesn't even run the Hoey committee. Here's what it says. This is from the, the uh, Lavender Scare. As with many congressional investigations, the driving force behind this Hoey committee's investigation of homosexuals was its chief counsel, Francis Flanagan. Hoey's discomfort and ignorance regarding the subject only increased Flanagan's responsibility. To the invest that the investigation was handled behind closed doors further enhanced his power. Um, eliminating, anyway, here's a Flanagan quote. I handled that investigation, Flanagan boasted when later questioned about the homosexuals in government inquiry. Flanagan managed the research effort, chose the witnesses who would testify before the committee, and wrote the final report. <laughs> right? Flanagan would later remark, if the hearings had been public, I'd have I'd have made a worldwide reputation as a great investigator of homosexuals. So the whole point here is they try to place this meeting. So what happens is after um so Webb meets with Truman. Webb informs Truman, Hoy asked me to show up. The way they write it is the two White House folks go with Webb. Webb's the main guy going. They're coming with him. That's not how it read. It mm. says he approved a suggestion that Mr. Murphy, Mr. Springer, and I attend this meeting. So they do. And there are these documents that come out of it that say what they talked about. What did they talk about? And by the way, David K. Johnson, this last year, because of the disinformation campaign, has been quoted many times in the New York Times and other places yeah. saying... Webb was not a leader of this in any way. And there's even a, um, an interview you can get from 2004 online from uh, uh, University of Chicago Press where he goes, you know, completely through. Webb had absolutely nothing to do with this. Now let's get back to this notion that he was in charge. He was in the, the, the line of command, you know, in the chain of command and he did nothing. All right. So let me tell you something. Every year I would get an annual evaluation when I was a professor. And I told you that we had one woman in our department. And when I was in Florida, I saw workplace misogyny like I had never, blatant, like I had never seen before in my life. Yeah. All right. So every time I had an evaluation or if I was in a meeting, you know, I was, you know, I frequently had conversations with the department head and the dean. They asked me, what can I do better? I would say, listen, you are the leader. The leader determines the culture. and leads the meeting it's up to you to stop this and they always you know right but i spoke out about this every chance is there any record of me speaking out against it mm. there's no record of that no no one would ever know right and here's the thing you can't do you can't say you know hey, i got seven black friends right to, to, to show that you're not a racist you can't say <laughs> nobody right, right, right. but there yeah. is proof against uh you know it, it, so so anyway the point is is that here is a quote from uh, Power and Apollo. Here's what it says. It's titled Losing Influence at State. So basically, the idea that I'm putting here is that, number one, James Webb was not in charge of the State Department. Dean Acheson was. And as number two, you have only as much power as number one gives you. A seeds, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and if you only have one job to do, you know, that's the job you're doing. So here's what it says. Um, because anyway, while he participated of Webb in foreign policy discussions, represented the department at ceremonial and social functions and made certain decisions when Atchison was out of town, he was for the most part a supporting player, Webb. After his prominence and influence as budget director, Webb found the undersecretary's job constraining. As, quote unquote, number two, he had only the pieces of the action Atchison left him. And so it goes on to how he was into science and technology, and that's what he went into. But there's more, right? So um, there, we talked about Atchison's style. Uh, oh, but you know what? There's another statement in here. Webb had spent much time mending congressional fences. Adept with legislatures, le legislators, he was the primary force at state in getting funds for various programs the department supported. Even he, however, could do little 
to affect the gathering storm in Congress over loyalty security issues in the State Department. Webb was powerless in the State Department. He was he resigned his position because he was powerless. Right. So what um, uh, ends up happening is here's another statement about the relationship between Webb and Atchison. All right. So uh, Webb was uh, looked at as being some sort of philosopher king because he was all into policy and bureaucracy and stuff. (laughs) And so here's the, the quote. No philosopher king would challenge Atchison's judgments. Webb's interests for organizational purposes meshed with Atchison's for maintaining his own role as the dominant policymaker within the department. Mm. Right? Yeah. You know, so they give like no context at all. And Anyway, let's get back to the Hoya subcommittee. So what comes out of the Hoya subcommittee? So the one document that's known to history is a document that Himmelstein gave to Webb. And Himmelstein is definitely one of the bad actors in this. So as is Purifoy, as is Flanagan, as is Wary, as is the Democratic Senator Hill from Alabama who joined with Senator Wary from Republican from Nebraska to make it a bipartisan congressional effort backed by the American public, the conservative American public, right? So what happens? We're at a time where the Korean War starts the same week <laughs> right after they, they, right and that's webb's only job is foreign policy and he gets consumed by that but he has to attend this meeting so he attends this meeting and the the readout is there it says they talked about whether or not the the hearings would be closed or open you know public or private they talked about you know what to call for witnesses in terms of doctors to talk about homosexuality but the key thing was y'all ain't getting no personnel files from the state department wow all right so a uh, memo is put out, and that memo has four elements that guides the State Department's interaction with the Hawaii subcommittee, the Congressional subcommittee. What are those four elements? Element number one, Dean Atchison and James Webb would not be involved in this whatsoever. <laughs> they will only be informed of major events, and even then, only when necessary. Item two, to the extent, uh, oh, and by the way, Humosign will handle everything. He will be the single point of contact, the single spokesperson, because he was the guy actually running it. He's the guy who wrote the homophobic memo that gave the history of the effort, right? It's true. Webb was a carrier and brought that memo over. But, you know, he, he had nothing to, to, you know, he was doing a political job that had nothing to do with the actual effort, right? So the second thing is, the second element is, to the extent that, uh, Humosign needs advisement. We're creating this five-person uh, committee, and here's who those people are. Item number three, we will share some statistics with you. Item number four, you will get no personnel files, and that's it. Web's gone. Mm-hmm. So wow. think about this. Think about this. You're doing this job. A guy has to, is running a committee, a Senate committee, to do something that he doesn't want to do, and he asks you, "Do can you come talk to me about this?" There's been this schism between the executive branch. There's this problem about dealing with, um, you know, these personnel files. Let's work this out together. He attends that one meeting and 70 years later, people say you initiated it. You ran it. You were a homophobe. You know, it, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. It's insane. And it, it just keeps, it keeps perpetuating and they just cite each other. I'm, I'm reading an article yeah. uh, from nature magazine uh, yeah. last yeah. year, late last year. Article. Yeah, and it was, uh, oh, well, the critics say this, and critics say this, that he was uh, influential, and he could have have, uh, been a part of that, but I don't think it makes him the right choice, this uh, Rolf Danner, an astronomer at the JPL. Well, listen, man, everything they've said is 100% false. He had a meeting with Truman. He regularly had meetings with Truman. He supported the Hoey Committee. No, he didn't. He attended a single meeting that Hoey requested that he attend. And then he sent a document, a memo. The agreement was, I will not be involved in this at all. Then they say, yeah, but you were there and you didn't speak out. Really? How do you know that? Right. So right. my and thing is this. Like so chamber. so right. this is the first time I'm speaking on this, except for this one CNN thing I did. And mm-hmm. the reason why is I waited until NASA made their decision. Yeah. Okay. When they went out and they said all these things, but let me tell you what the worst part of this is, right? Mm-hmm. Well, let, before, let me say this. Remember I started off talking about that Confederate soldier and 
Yeah. You know, what if this scenario? Mm-hmm. Now I think to myself, if that was me and I had held that sort of animosity for that statue all my life, even when I got the truth and that person didn't do that, I still wouldn't be eager to unhate them, right? right? Yeah, it would take some time, right? Yeah. So I try to be understanding and sympathetic, right? And so um, I even suffered, you know, I even put it in my book, right? So I was raised with a mother and a sister, and I had feminine behaviors and characteristics. So I was called a sissy all throughout my child. And by the way, you might not know this, but if you want to wear your hair as an afro and your hair like mine, you had to wear it braided a lot, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, so here I am with these bright eyes, you know, these, you know, these braids. I look like a little girl, right? I act like a little girl. So, you know, I was getting the hell beaten out of me by everybody. So I'm like, okay, let me be. You know, let me under, be understanding here. Yeah. But not only what began to unfold next was something that I did not expect. So what happened is another astronomer said, hey, man, I thought you and one of these people had a good working relationship because you were in the same research collaboration. I was like, yeah, I thought so, too. But it seems like they hate me now after this article. It's like, let me see if I can mediate this. Then this person sends me a screenshot. Where. One of the authors of that, those articles, one of the two leaders, says, ask Hakeem why he left Florida Tech. And so I called him. What, what, what's that about? And he made it clear to me. That person has made some very horrible allegations against you, right? And my response is, I don't care. I live my life. I'm public. Everybody knows who I am, what I do. My yeah, life is the only defense I need. You're you know, making drugs. <laughs> I mean, it's right. not like I'm you're not, you know, good. I don't, I'm a, so right. I, I completely ignored it until August came and I got a call from my dean, my former dean at Florida Tech. His name is Dr. Hamid Rasool. And he says anybody is free to contact him on this matter. But he told me he was having a, a conversation with another uh, of his colleagues from another university. And he says, hey, wasn't Hakeem a part of your faculty? He's like, yeah, well, we we're going to invite him for this particular thing. But one of the young astronomer women spoke up and said, hey, didn't you know certain certain happen? And my extra dean, you know, is a man of very, you know, very principled man of honor type guy, right? And he's like, what? No, not Hakeem, you know, uh, right? And so, so many members of the faculty, so, so many colleagues have told me this. And then when I got, when it was announced uh, that I had gotten this faculty position, you know, this um, mm-hmm. yeah. named faculty position at, 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 at GMU, one of the authors had this Twitter rant yeah. Where they actually publicly use certain words, right? And then another astronomer sat down with me. I mean, let me tell you the three things they're saying, man. All of them are 100% true. Untrue. Oh, please edit that. <laughs> All of them are 100%, <laughs> 100% untrue. untrue. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because, um, you know, so here it is. You do this to the dead, and now you're doing this to the living. And so, you know, I don't, you know, I don't feel the heat. And the reason why I don't feel the heat is because... Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've diversified my life. You know, I'm not just in the world of physics and astronomy anymore. Right. And so, you know, you can't harm me through that world is, is, is their thing. But my colleagues, <laughs> you know, are like, they're outraged, you know, and they're like, no, you should you know, do this and I don't do anything. Right. But here's the crazy thing about it. So at the end of that article I wrote in January, and my article was a TLDR. You know what that means? Yeah, too long. Too long, didn't read, didn't read right? Yeah. So it was a long article. At the end of that article, I lamented on how these false allegations got so far. And I talked about the authors, the journalists who wrote the two articles, and I talked about their sources, one of which was the book Towards Stonewall. And so it turns out that one of the, so- the source for the Forbes article is an astronomer. And... That person then went on their Twitter and said, oh, it's all an attack on me. All right, now let's look at it. I didn't mention the person's name. You got to read all the way to the end of my long article to find that I say, hey, these two authors and these two sources are wrong. The only person I named by name is the author of that book, Towards Stonewall, right? Mm -hmm. So you would have to go read to the end of my article, then go back up to the link at the top to that article Go read that article and then get to the end of that article to find the person's name. That is a weak hit piece, (laughs) I must say, right? If that's your intention, man, you're not going about it right, right? And so then they claim the victim and then go on an attack whisper campaign against me, 
with the most horrific of allegations. Mm-hmm. And so in the NSVP, the women pointed this out to me. These allegations, Hakeem, don't you realize that this is what have gotten black men killed in America historically? Right? These same people that did the disinformation campaign on the web have been doing that right. in, in smear, silence yeah. as well. Huh? Yeah. It's like a smear campaign uh, on to the messenger the, who did the research. Yeah. yeah. Right? Innocent, right? And you know, so but but the thing is, is that you know, if you read what they've written, they also attribute intention to me, right? Oh, Trying to exonerate Webb. No, I'm not. I'm trying to find out what happened. Um, you know, and, and things like that, right? And, and and oh, here's another one. Let me ask you, Brian. Have you ever uh, been working on something and a colleague said, "Hey, read the paper by Olushe," and then you go read it, and then you you know you end up citing it in your document? Yeah, of course, right? Yeah. Do you ever cite the person who told you? <laughs> no, no. No. So here's what happened. Unless it's a referee. Yeah. Right. Right. Unless it's a referee. Right. What happens is, is the day after my article comes out, people start contacting me out the yin yang. Okay. Several web scholars and people who worked at NASA with web in the 60s. Okay. And one of these web scholars pointed me to the archive where I saw that that memo between Humosign and Webb was because of this meeting. All right. I didn't yet have these documents from the National Archive of the meeting. Um, but, uh, um, so this person also told me, Hey, don't tell anyone that, uh, I gave you this because they tried to pressure me in the past and I could find no evidence to support that. I don't want them on my back again. So what do they do when they write their article about this, the straights, you know, are here to save us. That's right. Yeah. They say, well, look at what Hakeem did. We tweeted the archive location, and then he went and changed his article and didn't cite us for telling him what a primary resource is. I'm like, you should only do it from primary resource, and I didn't do it, get it from you anyway. I got it from this other person, right? Um, and so it's really crazy. And if you look, you know, and, and so, you know, it, it's so insane that they, that they, you know, create a lot of narratives that are false. For what purpose is it to drive, to discover the truth and uncover the truth about the situation? Because I'm thinking, whoo, you know, the Confederate statue guy actually wasn't a Confederate. Yay. And not only that, we got a lot of evidence that they did great stuff, right? To me, which meant it's a tragedy to falsely accuse anyone. It's several orders of magnitude worse if they're a good person doing good things for humans, Right. So that's what I was arguing. So the main argument, I think, against Webb, not against Webb, but for Webb. So the first thing about Webb is, so this, I got to give you one last thing. And this is about Webb's, um, you know, what about him and bureaucracy? Because here's the thing. Webb had a hero. So they write about, um, here's what they say. I'm trying to find it where he talks, they, they talk about uh, Webb and his nerdiness around, um, I, didn't, I, don't, I didn't have it marked. Anyway, the point is, is that, you know, if you, if you read Power and Apollo, you will see that they mention how Webb read everything he could about administration and bureaucracy and, and learn. You know, you read the giants, right? And so just like someone could ask me, oh, who's your favorite physicist ever? Webb had a favorite giant thinker of administration. Mm-hmm. It was a woman who in the early 20th century lived in a same-sex relationship openly, Mary Parker Follett. And every chance he got, Webb was lauding Mary Parker Follett. Now, one thing about being a member of one of the you know lower rungs of the hierarchy ladder, you know, mm-hmm. not, is you know, you could have straight up racists that love LeBron, right? Because, you know, you fit in certain roles. But one role that a person who has an ism never gives, you know, never gives is intellectual power, right? That is not, 
you know, not them. Not going to worship, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Someone yeah. That they have open animosity and antipathy for, right? Yeah, exactly. So, but here's the other thing, right? At the exact same time, you know, when Webb was in the, but you know, just as they were doing that in in the State Department, as that was beginning, Webb was running his own agency, the Budget Bureau of Budget. Shouldn't he have been doing that there if he was doing it in state, right? When he have you know, so so anyway, there's so much to it. So so I know that was just like a blur, but I, I have another article uh, to fill all the holes and show the reality of it in its full context. And it is a complete unnecessary wrong so that has been done. Substantiated by an independent, you know, NASA research committee that that also looked into this. Uh, his his, you know, whether or not it could be problematic or whether or not he what could be something that actually. So so here's the other thing about that. Uh, another thing that's funny about how it, uh, it, if you look at those articles, especially the, the, the first ones, they're like, hey, but he's not even a, a historian. Don't listen to him. Here's a real historian. Here's what they said. But then you go out as an astronomer and do this campaign, right? right. Like, listen to me about history. I'm right. a non-historian. Don't listen to that non-historian. Um, and, but here's the thing. I didn't do it alone. I did it with a guy getting a PhD. I did it with NASA historians, archivists, and journalists. I mean, not journalists, librarians. And they said this to me. They're like, Hakeem, we're so glad you're involved in this. We don't want to be publicly recognized because we see this like the moon landing, right? There's nothing we can do to convince the um, conspiracy nuts that, uh, you know, it's real. Uh, And if we put our names on it, it's going to look like an inside cleaning job or whatever. So it's, it's on you. So what I did is I waited um, you know, more than a year to after I left NASA. So it's clear that it's me and not NASA who's mm-hmm. doing this. Uh, yeah. You know, I wrote the entire thing right. myself. It's independently on Medium. Yeah, I'll have a link to that. Um, well, and, you know, it, t- it takes a tremendous amount of courage and that's not really surprising a, to me, but ra- based on- I knew on, it was a no win. Yeah. Yeah, right. It was I mean, the right thing to do. So, you know- and you gave the the right analogy. I mean, I'm Jewish. If I had, if there was some, you know, uh, test, you know, something that was testimony to uh, some some you know Nazi or or something like that. I'm not comparing the two, but but still to think about that, uh, I would have certainly a lot of misguided feelings. If it turned out that I was also a member, you know, if I was in charge of of at least revealing or didn't reveal something true that was inconvenient or uncomfortable, and then later, uh, you know, condemn for doing that because the narrative that people want to believe. Um, anyway, we, we talked a lot about this almost an hour. But let me, let me say one last thing. Overwhelmingly, the response from the community has been positive. This small group of people are savvy, smart, media savvy. They did what they did and drove a, you know, a a large movement. But, uh, within physics and astronomy, people were like, great job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, and that, that's true. And of course, the telescope was not renamed. It was it was discussed, and uh, and you know, after a thorough investigation by NASA, they decided not to do it. It has now been renamed. But you know, and you'll still see these uh, you know kind of contentions out there, and they're always you know kind of uncontested necessarily, and don't have the thoroughness of research that you have. And and you know that that that's their prerogative. That people have other things they want to do with their life. I wonder if the family of James Webb has been in touch with you or anybody. Absolutely, else? we're close yeah. now. In oh, fact. They, uh, there was going to be an event when, uh, the first date, December 15th, well, not the first date, but you know, (laughs) right. December 15th. And so they wrote to me and they were like, yeah, man, you know, NASA gave us a couple of tickets to attend this event at Goddard. And we asked them for a third ticket for you to come with us. Um, we're, we're family now in a, in a way. Right. But so many people reached out to me, not just the web family. They're like, why would you do this dude? You know, who who are you? I'm like, look, to be honest with you. I got nothing in it. I could care less about yeah. web. What right. I care about is the fact that people are looking at, you know, I, I imagine what it would be like if, uh, you know, David Duke, and every day I got to hear that, the David Duke Observatory, David Duke, you know, that would drive me crazy, right? So mm-hmm. I knew that members of the community were yeah. feeling some way every time they had to hear this name, you know? And so right. I was going to do one thing or the other. Like To be honest with you, you know, I, I know that I don't know until I know but mm-hmm. if I had a bias going in, it was assumption that it was real. It was true. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. And I was going to be like, I've shown you what he did. Now get him out of here. Right. <laughs> you know? Seems plausible. Right. But yeah. What exactly. happened, what I discovered was the opposite of that. And, and what, what, what am I going to do? I'm going to be like, okay, this is great. Right. Because now we no longer have this one way or the other. We're getting rid of the problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's yeah. not, you know, and so it, 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 what, what, I mean, to me, man, Really, you know, someone said this on on Twitter. Uh, 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 it, it's 
it's really like professional misconduct in a way to incite the community mm-hmm. around a lie and then to, you know, do a whisper smear campaign against and really them. affect people. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah, it's, it's. No, I always, you know, I was saying when <clears throat> there's internecine fighting, you know, between uh, say with Jews fighting against Jews, yeah. I would say like, we have enough problems with the rest of the world, like hating on us. Why, why, why do we have to hate on each other? Right. Like, and nobody cares really. Right. Like one of the things that I, I saw, for example, you know, it was two black scholars, um, Michael Eric Dyson and mm-hmm. um, what's the dude's name? Cornell West. Cornell right? West. Yeah, yeah. And they had these wrote these long essays attacking each other. And I'm like, dude, nobody cares. Y'all care, but you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, I'm going to write a long essay and put it out to the public so everybody can be a part oh, of this. Nobody it may cares. be tweeted. Yes, I may tweet it. Oh no, yeah, man. nobody cares, right? Nobody cares. Uh, so I'm not, you know. I'm just keep continuing on my path, doing what I do, right? Well, I also look at these people, you know, in the black community, in the in the homosexual community, lesbian, gay, bisexual, however you want to call it, and I and I find, you know, I do a lot of interviews. It happens to be I have a lot of African. I think I've had more African American scientists on this yeah. podcast than any podcast I'm aware of. I'm just, and I'm not like proud of it. I'm not saying, oh, pat me on the back. I'm such a good white ally. I, I think that's demeaning. Actually, I think, you know, they you need me as an ally. You know, like you're doing just fine. You know, and and, and I, no, I, dude, I do need you as an ally. But, right? I, I'm like, no, but, but I'm not supporting yeah. you because I'm not your ally because you're black. I'm your ally because right. you're you're an impressive individual. You're yeah, a human yeah. being who's accomplished a tremendous amount, right, who has right. merit, who has uh, yeah. who has courage, and those are the yeah. rarest qualities that came. And I do feel like you know it, it's it's funny because I was like walking around with my son on a walk. We take a walk with one of my kids, and I was like, I'm talking to a guy today, and his name's Hakeem. What do you think <laughs> that means? And he's like, hmm, Let me think about that. Does it mean smart? And I said, mm, Let me think about wow. that. Why why would it mean smart? And he goes, Because in Hebrew, the mm. word hacham. Hakim mm. means, means wise man. And wow. I was like, that is great. He didn't say, oh, he's Muslim or, yeah. or he's Arab. No, he just wow. said he's a wise man. I thought yeah, that was yeah. so cool. And that's what I want to be associated with. So yeah, what yeah. I, I use, I call it Keating's razor, you know, of, about Occam's razor. So I'll put out these, you know, I'll have interviews with people that are controversial, I'll have people on the right, on the left, and then I'll have the interviews with people and I'll get condemnation when I have someone on the right on, but then yeah, I'll have an interview with a lesbian you know, a bisexual, gay, transgender, queer, you know, black woman say, yeah. uh, you know, that's happened multiple times yeah. and, and there'll be no love. There'll be no like, Oh, thank you for being an right. ally or whatever. Yeah. They yeah. And I'm just like, how come you give me so much crap? You know, when right, if I have right. on somebody you don't like and you associate guilt by association, when I have on somebody who is in a community that you're treasuring, that you're wanting to support, yeah. you show me no love. I mean, yeah. I don't. So now I, I don't let that go to my head anymore. I don't let the yeah, criticism yeah. go to my man, go to my complainers, man. I mean, you know, the thing, I, you know, people, there's a variety. You know, I, yeah. I, of course, we. I, I rode a plane in 1999 when I was in Silicon Valley to to um, Heathrow from San Francisco. Yeah, I was sitting next to an accountant. From for for Johnson and Johnson, and this man found accounting fascinating, and he talked to me about it, mm-hmm. and found astronomy, astrophysics. What I was doing, not interesting at all. Yeah, boring. <laughs> that's how I found accounting discussion, right? <laughs> and I'm like, it's that's, that's a, such an interesting thing that humans are like that. You know, we have yeah. this variety, and so you know, I, I realized that. And so, like for me, for example, you know, I'm of the type of you know, it's hard to find me complaining. You know, I'm like, let's take action on this. I'm not gonna. Right. You know, I, I just find, you know, that, uh, you know, so, so the point is that we're in a, a, um, situation now where people are empowered to speak out. They have a voice maybe for the first time. Yeah. And I think that when you get a voice, you know, well, the first thing I think that there shouldn't be a single approach to any problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, there's a reason why you have the good cop, bad cop, you know, and things like that. Right. Exactly. So I think that having a variety of approaches approaches is the definite thing that you should do. Uh, but if you are going to. um, you know, I, I don't know, man, it, it's just frustrating to me yeah. when, you know, I, I feel like people have the best of intentions mm-hmm. and. You know, they they want to do right, but then sometimes, you know, you find yourself doing the wrong, even though you, you really want to do right, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, I, I just, I don't, yeah, my rule is I don't judge people on their intentions. I judge yeah. them based on their actions <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. you can have good intentions all you like, but, right, but if right, you're not, right. you know, if you're not really kind of creating good and, and I'm a behaviorist, I, I believe mm. you know, your actions speak louder than your words and his words right, are cheap yeah. and especially in the era of yeah. social media, it's like, it can get oh, amplified. Yeah. And Mar- I mean, remember Mark Twain said in 1890s, you know, the, a lie can make it around the world, you know, uh, oh, yeah. twice before a truth even gets right. its pants on. And but there's now, another statement, which is a lie don't live long. Right. Yeah. There's a parable in, in Judaism where, where a man slanders a rabbi. There's a name for it. And it's one of the greatest sins there is called Lashon Hara. Uh, he slanders a rabbi and then he feels bad about it. But in slander, he's telling the truth. He's not lying about the rabbi. He's just, he's telling a, a rumor, gossip. And then he goes to the rabbi and he says, I feel so bad about it. How can I make amends? And the rabbi says, very simple. Go get a, a, a feather pillow. Guy's like, what the heck? All right, I'll get a feather pillow. He goes, um, uh, here's your feather pillow. What, am I done? No, uh, go ahead and cut it open. Oh, all right, I'll cut it open. So he cuts it open and the feathers start blowing away. And, and, the, and the rabbi says, okay, you're almost done. Now just go out and get all the feathers back. And the point being, it's like, you can't, like I always say to my, you know, words are like toothpaste, you know, once you use it, you can't take it back. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, this, this whole episode, it's depressing. It's demoralizing in a certain way. It's also hopeful because people like you do exist that can kind of blow the whistle for truth and set the record straight. Even when you start off, maybe not even inclined to take that tack from the very beginning. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Into the Impossible podcast with my friend, Dr. Hakeem Elshayi. You won't want to miss episodes that are coming up soon. We're going to have uh, some really fascinating explorations of life in the universe and consciousness. Dr. Philip Goff is coming on extremely soon. We had an interview with Richard Powers, winner of the Pulitzer Prize. We'll have on Ed Young, another Pulitzer Prize winner in the not-too-distant future. And Sabina Hassenfelder is coming back on the show for her new book, Existential Physics. So I want to uh, thank you for this journey and also to commend to you uh, the books by our guest, Hakeem and others, and also my new book, The Dialogue on the World News on the Chief World Systems. Actually, it's not my book. It's Galileo's 390-year-old book uh, that I just happened to record with my friend Carlo Rovelli, Lucio Picciarillo, Frank Wilczek, Carlo Rovelli. I already said Carlo, but he's so good, we name him twice. Uh, as well as uh, Jim Gates and Fabiola Giannotti, you won't want to miss this audiobook. You can get it wherever audiobooks are sold or on my website, briankeating.com. I hope you'll come to my website, briankeating.com backslash list join my monthly magic mailing list where i send out messages every monday and news around the universe things i'm up to and i hope you'll also leave a review a rating you can do a rating on spotify and audible but you can also leave a review on itunes and i thought i'd read one to you that i received recently from someone whose name is like a mist and um and like a mist says this is intellectual inspiration. It's hard to say what it means to know, but when I listen, it makes me want to understand. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Like a Mist. Another listener, Sokuhi, Sokuhi, says, never boring and never repetitive. I used to listen to a wide range of science podcasts. Over time, most became boring, repetitive, and uninteresting. Brian's Into the Impossible podcast is a glowing exception. I love his guests and his ability to elicit insights that never stop. You'll never stop learning and listening when you listen to this podcast. Thank you very much, everybody. I wish you would do the same. You can find it on iTunes. Just go on your Apple Podcast app and look for my name. Leave a review. Uh, give it an asterism. Five stars. No fewer. Uh, like some members of my family do. But we'll leave that out for now. So for now, I hope that you are doing well, enjoying uh, this mid-spring season. And I can't wait to bring to you the upcoming great guest on the Into the Impossible podcast. So for now, I hope you have a magical week. Until next time, this is yours truly, Brian Keating, signing up for the Into the Impossible podcast.